Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. Isn't this nice? It's the perfect place to be after seeing a show in the summer. The weather is absolutely perfect for this. You can just sit outside, grab a piece of the world's best cheesecake, a cup of coffee, and just people watch. And with any luck, you'll see somebody famous. We have had our fair share of sightings, Mm -hmm. from Andrew Lloyd Webber Mm -hmm. to Dwayne The Rock Johnson and even Bette Midler herself. Yes, Junior's really is the perfect place to be after a show. It's like Sardi's, but we get to sit outside and just enjoy the ambiance. Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we are going to be discussing the groundbreaking show, Next to Normal. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello everyone, and welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. We're alive, we're alive, we're so alive! And if you all stay tuned, then we'll tell you why. Because today we are diving into the Pulitzer Prize winning show, Next to Normal. This show broke barriers in the realm of subject matter and changed the game as to what and how the Broadway musical could both address social and medical issues. But you already know what's coming. We have to lay the groundwork before we go much further. The show had been a big hit off-Broadway and played for two months in the arena stage in Virginia. The musical began in 1998 as a 10-minute workshop sketch about a woman undergoing electroshock therapy and how it impacted her family. Brian Yorkey brought the idea to Tom Kitt while they both were in attendance of the BMI Lehman Angle Music Theater Workshop. Even though the two turned to other projects, they kept feeling the need to return to their Feeling Electric musical. In 2002, they finally expanded it into a full-length musical and had a reading at the Village Theater in Issaquah, Washington. They also did a reading in New York City at the Musical Mondays Theater Lab. Many Broadway alumni were brought in at various readings throughout the process, including Norbert Leo Butts and Sherry Renee Scott. In September of 2005, the combination of Amy Spanger as Diana, Joe Cassidy as Dan, Annalie Ashford as Natalie, Benjamin Shader as Gabe, and Anthony Rapp as Dr. Madden attracted the attention of producer David Stone. The piece was then workshopped at Second Stage Theater in 2006 and in 2007, with different casting, including Alice Ripley as Diana and Skylar Austin as Henry. 
The idea then was to shift the story from being a critique of the medical establishment and focus more on the family's pain. Finally, under the name Next to Normal, the show premiered at Second Stage Theater from January 16th to March 16th in 2008. Anthony Rapp became assistant director. Brian Darcy James was brought in to play Dan, Aaron Tevet as Gabe, Jennifer Damien as Natalie, Adam Chandler Barrett as Henry, and Asa Somersault as Dr. Madden, Dr. Fine. Up until this point, the family went by the last name of Brown, but was changed to Goodman. When the show moved to Regional Theater Arena stage, J. Robert Spencer took over the role of Dan, and Louis Abson assumed the roles of Dr. Madden, Dr. Fine. This is also when the book took a major revamping to concentrate the story entirely on the emotions of the family. This was met to rave reviews. This is probably the perfect time to introduce the design team for the show. The set was by, by Mark Wendland, costumes by Jeff Mashey, lights by Kevin Adams, sound design by Brian Ronan, music by Tom Kitt, book and lyrics by Brian Yorkie, directed by Michael Grief, Musical staging by Sergio Trujillo. Next to Normal was originally booked for the Long Anchor Theater, a larger venue. But according to producer David Stone, when the Booth Theater became available, he knew it was the right place for Next to Normal. The musical opened on April 15, 2009 and ran for 734 performances, closing on January 16, 2011. The show was groundbreaking because of its depiction of bipolar depression disorder. The main character, Diana, um, goes through all three known treatments for this disorder, which are psychopharmacology, um, a therapy known as drug therapy, psychotherapy, and electroconvulsive therapy. The show was nominated for 11 Tony Awards and ended up winning three. Best Original Score... Best Orchestrations, and Best Actress in a Musical for Alice Ripley. The show also won the 2010 Pulitzer Prize for Drama. It was the eighth musical in history to receive the honor of Pulitzer Prize for Drama. So, let's go down the rabbit hole. Diana Goodman, a suburban mother with bipolar disorder, stays up late awaiting the return of her son, Gabe, who has broken curfew. Also awake is Diana's daughter, Natalie, an overachieving high school student who is stressfully studying for an upcoming test. Diana encourages her daughter to take a break and rest. Soon after, Gabe returns home and Diana's husband, Dan, awakes to help the family prepare for the day. Diana prepares a meal for her family, but Dan and Natalie stop her when they realize the sandwiches she is making cover every kitchen surface. As Dan helps the disoriented Diana, Natalie and Gabe leave for school. Natalie uh, releases some pent-up anger and frustration as she practices for an upcoming piano recital in the school's music room, where she meets Henry, a classmate who has been admiring Natalie from afar. 
Meanwhile, Diana repeatedly visits her psychiatrist's office, where she has prescribed a variety of medications that all prove to cause debilitating physical side effects. Dan waits Dan waits through her appointments in the car while he questions his own sanity. When Diana is given a medication that numbs and rids her of all feelings, the doctor pronounces her stable and sends her on the way. After witnessing a romantic moment between Natalie and Henry, Diana mourns the loss of her old life, longing for the days she lived in both pain and joy, as opposed to the numbness her new medication has caused. At Gabe's suggestion, she flushes her medications. Meanwhile, Dan arranges a family dinner, inviting Henry to join them. When Diana brings the table, uh, when Diana brings to the table a cake for Gabe's birthday, Dan gently reminds her that Gabe, in fact, died nearly 16 years ago, and her visions of him throughout the show have only been hallucinations. After an upset Natalie runs to her bedroom, Dan clears off the dinner table while Diane reveals she has stopped her medication. As he tries to empathize with her, she becomes angry, saying he could not possibly understand the pain she is going through. Dan begs her to let him help however he can, reminding her of his faithfulness and patience thus far, but is interrupted by a vision of Gabe, whom only Diana can see. Diana immediately clings to her son, rejecting Dan's offer of comfort. Upstairs, Natalie vents to Henry over her mother's attachment to the dead Gabe. Diana overhears their conversation and offers the only comfort she is capable of giving, telling Natalie, I love you as much as I can. Diana visits a new doctor who performs talk therapy and hypnosis on her. During their session, she sees Gabe, who asserts his dominance over her and the control he has in her life. Diana reveals intimate details about the effects of her illness, saying that she was unable to hold Natalie in the hospital when she was born. Meanwhile, Natalie botches an important piano recital upon discovering her parents were not in the audience. Diana's doctor encourages her to go home, spend time with Natalie, and clean out a box of Gabe's old things in an attempt to let him go. Diana agrees, but is confronted with a hallucination of Gabe while sorting through a box in their basement. Gabe convinces her to commit suicide, saying it's the only way they can be together. Diana is hospitalized after her suicide attempt fails, and Dr. Madden tells Dan that electrocompulsive therapy is the only is one of the only options they have left. Dan returns home to clean up the scene of his wife's attempt at suicide, narrowly avoiding a breakdown of his own as he reminisces about the years spent with Diana. Natalie finds him and is angry to discover that he has agreed to the doctor's recommendation of shock therapy. Upon returning to the hospital, he finds that Diana has become aggressive with the staff for wanting her to sign the uh, confirmation papers likening the idea of shock therapy to its depiction in the film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. However, after clearing the room, he manages to convince her of the necessity of the treatment, saying it's the only way they can get back to normal. Diana reluctantly agrees and signs the papers. Act 2 starts, and we find that Diana receives a series of ECT treatments over two weeks. Meanwhile, Natalie experiments with drugs and frequently goes clubbing, being rescued most nights by Henry, who sees her home safely. On one occasion, she seems to share a hallucination with her mother. Upon Diana's return home from the hospital, 
It is revealed that she has lost her memories of the last 19 years due to the shock therapy, including the memory of her deceased son. Henry, who has been finding Natalie passed out at clubs and driving her home, asks Natalie to the upcoming school dance, an invitation which she immediately declines. Meanwhile, Dan questions Dr. Madden over Diana's memory loss, learning that it is a relatively common side effect of ECT. Because Gabe's death was the start of the lifetime of depression, Dan hesitates to remind her of it. At home, he and Natalie help Diana sort through a box of pictures and memories of her old life, leaving out any mention of Gabe's existence. However, Diana is briefly confronted afterward by Gabe, who hints that she has forgotten a vital part of her life. Meanwhile, Henry again invites Natalie to the dance, but is turned down again. Diana visits Dr. Madden, who accidentally reveals the existence of her son, unaware that Dan has not yet done so. After learning this, Diana returns home and searches through Gabe's old belongings, finding the music box that helped him sleep as an infant. When Dan finds her revisiting the night their son died, he reluctantly reminds her that their son had died of an illness all of the doctors missed. Diana confusedly admits she recalls hallucinating Gabe as a teenager, and Dan frantically says they will get her to the doctor and do more ECT, which leads to a heated argument between the two that Natalie witnesses the peak of. After Natalie runs upstairs to her bedroom, where Henry is waiting to talk to her, Diana questions Dan about why he stays, despite all the things she puts him through and all the pain they have experienced together. He reminds her of their wedding vows and promises to see their relationship through, no matter how much she pushes him away. Upstairs, Henry makes a similar pledge to Natalie. However, Diana again sees Gabe and is immediately entranced by him, drawn away from Dan. Though Dan begs her to stay, Diana leaves and visits Dr. Madden, frustrated that the years of treatment haven't seemed to improve her condition, and wonders if her grief over losing her son should truly be medicated. Dr. Madden pleads with her to stay with him, recommending more shock treatment and other medications, but she leaves the appointment. Upon returning outside, she connects with Natalie for the first time, noting the similarities between the two of them and truly making an effort to connect with her for possibly the first time. They embrace and agree that somehow they will get a life somewhere next to normal, and Diana drives Natalie to the dance to meet Henry. At the dance, Natalie voices her concerns to Henry that she will someday end up with the same issues as her mother, though Henry promises to stand by her no matter what, and the two kiss. Diana returns home and tells Dan she is leaving him, saying that though she still loves him, they both must finally come to terms with their grief on their own. Devastated, Dan looks back on his years of faithfulness to her and sees Gabe for the first time. The two share an embrace, and Dan says Gabe's full name for the first and only time in the show. Gabe disappears, and Natalie returns home to find that her mother is gone. She continues her relationship with Henry, and Diana has moved in with her parents temporarily. Still depressed, but more hopeful than she's ever been. Dan visits Dr. Madden, who gives him the name of another psychiatrist he can talk to. Gabe is seen by the audience one final time, this time by relaying a message of hope as opposed to the threatening, ominous persona he has previously taken, and the family adjusts to their new way of life. The The end. end.
So, let's now talk about the story and the show and all the things and everything that we like and we didn't like and... It's a heavy show, man. It's very heavy. Like, if you just listen to the music, you're kind of like, oh, okay. Like, there's a lot of... Highs and lows. Well, I mean, there's <laughs> just... Yes, but it... if you just listen to the music, not the words, you're like, okay, I can handle this. Then you throw the mute, like the words and the lyrics, and you're like, ooh, ooh, okay. But then you add the book in, and you're like, yeah, this is not an escape musical, nope. by any stretch of the imagination. This... No, nope. and just reading the plot made me incredibly sad. Yeah, we're just we're gonna sit here and drink our tea and nibble on our Prozac. No, um, <laughs> I thought this was a very, very revolutionary story. Powerful and moving book. I mean, up until now, this hadn't been talked about. Right. Well, we, we didn't talk about medical stuff on stage particularly mental health oh yeah well and this whole idea of mental health being something we need to talk about was not a thing yet Uh -uh. um it was just kind of starting to be brought up and i think that one of my favorite things about this show is um you start to see cycles developing and then you also see how to break the cycle of toxicity Yes, and it's it paints the idea of mental health. It's not something that we sweep like, you know, that's your uncle, whatever. We don't talk about them. And it also doesn't put it in the humorous category. Yeah, it's it, like... It no. literally brings out in the open and says, we got to talk about this. Yeah. This is something that happens and we have to address it. And we can't just keep acting like it doesn't happen. And I mean, you know, this was back in 2009, 10, 11, so a decade ago. And I feel like our younger listeners... Might be like, I don't get the big deal, but it's like, even 10 years ago, mental health was not something you really talked about. You toughed it out. If you had, if you were diagnosed with something, like even something as small, I shouldn't say small, but something as simple as just generalized anxiety disorder, it was, we're going to whisper about it because we don't want to talk about it. Or like if you had, you know, depression, it was like, eh, we don't talk about you, you you were on drugs, but you didn't see what they were for. It was more glamorous to be on drugs like Prozac and Zoloft and that. But you, it was not so glamorous what it was for, mm-hmm. if that made sense. And so you more wanted to have the drugs than you wanted to actually fix the problem. Where this show was like, guys, we got to get to the bottom of what the problem is. Yeah, we can't just keep cycling through all these drugs. Um, and there's another, oh my gosh, there's another great work that we're going to get to many many episodes called the effect mm-hmm. uh, brilliant play and I mean I'll give it away and hopefully it'll come up we'll, we'll discuss it later but what I loved about the effect is basically it asked the question of regarding depression what if depression isn't the the thing you're trying to treat what if depression is actually a symptom of something bigger mm-hmm. and I love that because this show I feel like was the first one to come out and be like hey we shouldn't just throw medicine at something just to make you feel good. We really should get to the source of the problem. And really, we should all be okay with getting to the source of why we don't feel okay and not just take a pill to make well, it better. And even the way that we use language to describe these things now has changed a lot in the past 10 years since this script. Um, think about it. Like Diana is described as being bipolar. 
Um, whereas now we would describe her as um, depressive. Well, bipolar. She could still be bipolar, but with hallucinations. Like the hallucinations are a separate well, exactly. symptom. They are not something that everyone who has bipolar disorder exhibits. She would be bipolar disorder too, which is manic depression, where she has mania episodes, i.e., the sandwiches everywhere. Mm-hmm. And then she has the really lows where she doesn't want to move anywhere. Or they talk about the time she was naked at the store, running around. Again, a high, a mania. Mm -hmm. You know, other times where she just crashed the car into the garage after running over the cat. That's a low. Mm -hmm. You know. But like you said, the hallucinations are something separate. But look at the conversation we're having right now. That's what this show did. Mm -hmm. And that was the point of the show is... To get people to talk about this and to normalize it. And that's something so powerful. When a show does it, not only entertains you and, and hits all the marks, design and everything like that, but also when you leave the theater, you continue a conversation, you continue everything after you're outside the theater. That's the mark of a really great show. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the cast was absolutely was ta- uh, amazing. It was talent-packed, oh, head-to-toe. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and especially considering there's only six people in the entire cast. Yeah. It, every single person is just jam-packed full of talent um, in this production. And I don't think there's a ton, if I remember, I mean, it's been a while since I saw it, but I don't think there's a ton of dialogue. Mm, no, there's like, I mean, it's a good like blend, but like some of the music, it's almost more like an operetta. Where yeah, there's, it reminds me more of Rent. Yes, where the the speaking is with the music. Right, and I just feel like there's, but I feel like the bulk of it, the bulk of dialogue and communication, is sung, mm-hmm. and the scenes, the bulk, pretty much everything is sung. All the the relationships and everything is sung, so you have to establish these storylines, these relationships, and everything through song, so they're already heightened because you're singing, but then you actually have to keep them going. I mean, that's. If you don't ever get the moment to just pause and and speak, you're you you are confounded by time and rhythm and things like that. It's like okay, well, you still have to make it genuine. So good luck. Mm-hmm. So let's go ahead and. Break- oh wait wait wait! I'm sorry. I I wanted to add one more note in here before we get into the breaking down because I wanted to throw one little, um, I guess fan. What would you call it? Um, What's the thing where like fans write their own version of it? Fan fiction. I guess fan fiction. Just a, just a, a what if, as we were reading it, because this thought came to mind. It's not until the end that Dan finally addresses Gabe, sees Gabe, and actually calls him by his name, and he only does it one and only time. And after that, Gabe goes away, right? Mm-hmm. And I've mentioned this to you before. And through the entire show, they're trying to treat Diana and nothing seems to work. What if Diana's not the one that actually is ill? What if it's actually Dan? Mm-hmm. That Dan is refuses to acknowledge Gabe so much that it's rubbing off on the rest of his family. And, and the hallucination everything's actually not Diana's, it's Dan's. Mm-hmm. Like, it's if you think theory. about that way and you see the show in that way... It's a whole nother ball game. And you also throw out the idea that a man can't have mental issues or thing like that. Because, yeah, I just remember the second time seeing this show and I saw it at a regional theater. 
that beautiful moment where that's the first time he said his name, and then all of a sudden, yeah, Gabriel disappears. We don't see him again. Well, and all the and anger all sudden, and the hate goes away. Yeah, and Diana all of a sudden seems a lot more at peace and better. And I was like, well, maybe Diana wasn't the one with the issue. Maybe she, maybe she wasn't the one. We because we don't see every second of their life. Maybe Dan was the one forcing his grief on everyone and everybody else was buying into it to comfort him for so long that they began, they got consumed by it. Mm-hmm. And that's when I was like, ooh, it's- interesting. Because I also saw remnants of that in Dear Evan Hansen mm-hmm. when the dad just doesn't show a lot of emotion until the end of Act 1. And then you just see, you feel like everything just released. Mm-hmm. Now that everyone's accepted Connor... And what has happened is just, oh, you felt that in this show. Mm-hmm. So, But I wanted to put that out there real quick. I'm sorry. I added that last second. And now we can go on to the mini boxes, if you will. Starting with the set, the set. of course. That beautiful purple set of the house. With, oh, yeah. Six, uh, uh, sorry, a three-level house. With, like, these door things. That's, okay, so I... Were they projections or were they like screens? I think they were screens. I think it was screens, not projections. Okay, cool. That's what I thought. And so they were screens, and there was someone's face up on, you know, someone's face that oh, made it up was the Diana's house. Yeah. eyes. Diana's and, eyes and face in the background. Right. That made up the like covered the the house, if you will. But these these doors, if you will would slide open to reveal the different rooms and sets and the places, you know, maybe we were in the music room or Natalie's bedroom or what have you, and they would just slide off. But when they came back, if they were all closed, it would make basically the logo, Mm -hmm. the house logo. (laughs) And it was simple, and it was perfect. It Mm -hmm. it didn't need to be more. And it it also kind of reminded me of just like compartmentalizing Yes, I was going to say, it's kind of like, yes, when someone who is going through some sort of trauma and trying to process it, it's very normal to compartmentalize things. And so it's like, oh, well, this is the bedroom. I can only freak out in the bedroom. This is the kitchen. I can only be happy in the kitchen. You know, just in the same way that, you know, your house is carpet. Carpet. Oh, my gosh. Carport? Yes, exactly. Compartmentalized into different rooms, your brain, especially when you're trying to process trauma, will compartmentalize things. Ah, yes, and that yeah, that's that's exactly how I saw the set. Right. So, I thought the set was brilliant, and um, I, I want to skip actually down to what complemented it, which was the lights. Um, I love the lighting. I thought the lighting was really great. I thought it was balanced. I thought it was focused. I know that sounds like really weird to say lighting is balanced and focused. Like, well, of course, they focused the light. No, I mean, it it looked right. That doesn't sound intelligent at all. No, but it's like it's like <laughs> when it needed to be dark and moody, it was dark and moody. Right. When it needed to be bright, it was bright. When it needed to be funny, it needed to... You know what I mean? Like, it, it, it was... It, I literally felt like I was in Diana's mind. Yes. In that, like, I need, I saw what she wanted me to see and had just how much she wanted me to see about each scene, mm-hmm. uh, which was nice. Uh, one of the things that I'm thinking of the most is the birthday cake scene. When she comes in and they turn oh, out the yeah, lights yeah, yeah, yeah. and 
it, I, the birthday cake is basically what lights them all, but there is some vague light making sure that we can still see their face. Mm-hmm. And it's just really well lit. And the other thing that I remember is when she gets the ECT. Mm-hmm. And you just see the lights kind of being chaotic. And it's, it's the depiction of her mind. Mm-hmm. You know, we really get that feeling about her mind. Um, the palette was really great. Oh, um, yeah. And the, the, it's hard to make gray light. Yes, But this yes. made like a gray light feel to it. Which was important because we'll get into it with costumes, but the grays and the purples and, you know, that, that, that was the show's theme and it really helped complement that set, which was also gray and purple. And so, mm-hmm. and I don't understand that choice. Like where, how they landed on that color scheme, but it worked so well. And mm-hmm. something about it just, it was appealing and, and I can't help but think when I think of mental health or about the brain or something, that's what I go to. And now when I see shows that deal with mental health or about the brain, like I think about incognito or something, it is in those hues, gray and blue in, in incognito's case or what have you, you know? And I'm like, interesting, well, interesting. I'm a blue mind, but um. Uh-oh. I'm ready. So, think about it this way. When you think of depression, what color do you think of depression? Blue. When you think of anger, what do you think of red. color? Red. What do blue and red make? Purple. You go to hell. It's a mix. <laughs> it is a mix of those two emotions. You stop being you, it's so a smart. Dichotomy. What is this? You know, it's a, di- it's a dichotomy of anger and pain and hurt and sadness. That's why it's purple. You mock me, my love. You mock me when I say that things feel a certain color. But it's because it's the same kind of concept. And when you combine them, you get different combinations. You just went hardcore Jed Bartlett there for a minute. You know? You mocked me. You mocked my <laughs> sense of <laughs> No, I didn't ever I never realized that. That is this is why you friend, actors out there, this is why you marry a designer, because they know these things. And then at a party, they will make you look smarter. Um, yeah, we'll so also make you look good, too. That, that's also true. I always get compliments on my hair, and I'm like, I married a wig person, so I'll always have good hair. Um, but that then that leads us back to costumes. And I like, like the bareness. It wasn't mm-hmm. fancy. They're it was almost, muted. Yes, yeah, it looked like they were just like, you know, you've uh, a lot of costume like uh, shows will have like this basic under look, you mm-hmm. know, like a, uh, that they all they'll wear and then they'll jump into these other elaborate costumes and that's what they look like they were in the entire time. They were all basically in grays with an accent of purple here and there with the exception of uh, Gabe. Gabe was in a completely different, I think Gabe was in light gray or he might have been in purple actually i really can't remember i can't remember but he was in a different color from everyone else Mm -hmm. for a good reason Mm -hmm. i think he was in light gray i think but anyway um and yeah and i was just like this the fact that the lights and the set and the costume and they're all on the same page and they're working and they're working together and they're Mm -hmm. create because those colors create a mood they create a feeling that we get into that the music then complements and the dialogue complements and this it's it's all mm-hmm. one big well and when there's thing. a stronger emotion the colors are more saturated when you know Diana is very blah and going through her treatment they're less saturated yes. i mean and they're all kind of still in the same tone 
like same tonal family and like you know when you're thinking about it i mean they're just in normal like people clothes like i mean their street clothes is what we would we in the theater would call them they look like their street clothes yes um you know but the the color scheme in the costumes just kind of help to enhance that story because everything is very um muted a lot of the time Yes, and the one thing I'll say is that um, Diana seemed to be more in those reds and purples and whatnot. She was well, all... she was in red because she was angry. Yes, yes. In fact, I'm looking at a few pictures here. I'll, I'll show you, like at the birthday cake scene, she's in red, and and um, Gabe is in that gray, and you can see that Dan is in these in this pale gray look. But at the end, they're all in color. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah, it it is a brilliant use of color you know and i like the that it matches well with what the line designer does with those lip boxes uh, you know uh, it it just works you have to i mean it just elevates what what is written if that makes sense Mm -hmm. and i love when designers can can really um What's the word I'm Elevate looking? the subject. Well, no, no, not just that. They just fuse together. They can... Synergy. When they can have synergy. Because, you know, a, an element of the theater, design element of a show can really be just absolutely mind-blowing. But when they all come together... And I'm not just talking about set lights, costume, sound. When everything, the book, the music and lyrics, and then the acting comes... That's how Tony's That's together. how Tony's happen. I mean, you just get this epic show that just, you're like, I need well, my and soul. Well, be, being a theater human, um, it's it can be hard for, at least, I don't know about you, but for me, it can be hard to engage 100% into a story and just observe it. Oftentimes, I find myself yes. picking things apart or yes. paying attention to one thing over the other. And the way that I can tell a show is very successful... Is when you get just sucked in and absolved. And, and, I, yes. and I stop paying attention to individual items. Yes. Um, and at a, in design school, um, something we talked about is, you know, a true compliment to a designer would be that no one noticed a, noticed their work separately. Yes. And that's because everything complemented it so well that you couldn't pick out the wigs being different from the costumes or the set and the lights being different. You just remember the show as a whole and you're like, it all just... Mm -hmm. And and you remember the story and everything about it. You weren't just like... And the fact that those ideas are coming from completely separate people to be able to come together like that. I love that 11, 12, 13 different people and then everyone else down below that are working to Mm -hmm. put together. I love that theater is a collaborative art form. Absolutely. And I mean, there are a handful of shows that we have just been absolved in the most... Most recently, the ones I'm thinking of right now are like Kimberly Akimbo, mm-hmm. uh, the Lehman trilogies. Mm-hmm. I mean, Hamilton for me. Come from away for me. Mm-hmm. Bright Star. Bright yeah. Star. Uh, Bandstand. Bandstand. Uh, Girl from the North Country was one for me. You know, uh, and I'm not saying that there isn't good theater out there that we've seen. And just because if we, we aren't completely absolved into a show... Yeah, it doesn't lessen the greatness company. of it. Yeah. And the only reason why we noticed things with company is we were that blown away, but then like leaving it was like, oh my gosh, that I... This is the thing that's... We couldn't believe we were at the end. And I was like, no, 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 no. You know, when Patty Lapone came out, I was just like, this, no, I'm not ready for you to do your big number yet. I want more. But I digress. 
So this show really had that synergy going. Um, and the person that brought that synergy together was the director. And I want to talk about the direction. I love the tension that was created amongst the characters. Mm-hmm. And what it was that upper middle class tension. Yes. We're like trying lost, to be the perfect. But not quite yes. Lost. But not the kind that makes us be like you you have you can't have problems because you're rich. It's that kind of you feel bad for them because they don't want to talk about it because they're from a, a I don't know, a generation or a family that they don't talk about their problems outside the house kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then I also love the games being played between them. Mm-hmm. As an improviser, like watching this, I feel like the director, I'd love to ask the director this, but did they, in directing, give each different actor, like, this is your objective and you have to find a way to get this? And it wasn't just like, Natalie, you want to get to college. It was like, there, you know, Alice has a pack of balloons in her pocket and you have to somehow get those balloons in your pocket, no matter what. Like, that's what I feel like, because I felt like they were all playing a different game to get something else. Mm-hmm. And it made it that much because they never felt quite like a cohesive unit. I mean, they weren't meant to be though, and that's what was great. Mm-hmm. They, it, and and not and and you have to justify not having that connection. Mm-hmm. And and that's why I really appreciated that. And likewise with that, I love the development of the characters though. We did see them go on a journey. Mm-hmm. Well, like one that comes to mind is you start to see the parallels, like when I talked about the cycle being created. With when Natalie you, and Diana? Or not even just Natalie and Diana, but also Dan and Henry. Henry, yes, yes, and yes. And you're like, oh no, like it's great to be devoted to someone, but you can't be so devoted you become blind to their needs. Yes. And so you're watching Henry go down this path. And the fact that he's able to break that cycle and... Mm-hmm whatnot is fantastic well and see the big the thing that i love the most in regards to the direction and it's also kind of tying in with the story but the characters go on this huge journey and like they reach a resolution but they really don't reach a resolution like their issues don't resolve they don't solve the problem but yet you still feel like they have solved the problem like it almost feels like there's a bow at the end but at the end of the day it's like we really haven't progressed in a better situation. We're still sitting in the same pile of crap we started with. We're but, just in a different location. We're right. just in a different pile of crap, same situation, if that makes any sense. Diana's now on her own, but she hasn't fixed any of her mental health issues. Um, Natalie and Henry, yeah, they're together, but you see what's to come. Dan is alone and hasn't sorted out his issues. I will say what it kind of feels like, and this is going to be a really bad analogy, and I'm sorry, um, is when you're at work and your stomach starts getting upset. And it's like the more you try to fight it and keep working and pretend like your stomach's not upset, the worse it feels. And when you finally... Go to the bathroom, accept that you're sick, and accept that you have to go home. You feel better. Even though you don't feel better, you still have to go home sick. But the fact that you've, like, accepted that, okay, I don't feel good. I'm calling in the towel. I'm going to go home and rest. You feel a little better because you know that. But that. it makes sense. I you hate get that it. analogy. I hate that I get it. I just, I, Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. You can't help it, I'm a genius. And I, 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 <laughs> I also love that I, I really think, um, as someone who has bipolar depression, 
um, I felt that this was a really good depiction of what bipolar depression not only looks like, but feels like. You know, I see a lot of these posts and memes that go around that are like, you know, this is what anxiety feels like. This is what depression feels like. Now imagine having them both at the same time. And I kind of like, yeah, that makes sense. But I'm like, imagine knowing what you need for help, but you can't ask for help. And you keep pushing the people you need for help away. And yet, da, 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 da. And I'm like, how can you communicate that? And this show does that. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so close to home. You know, mm-hmm. because it they do it perfectly. You know, it looks simple where it's like, just ask for help, Diana. Just ask for help and go talk to someone and everything will be fine. But it's not that simple. Well, and finding the right form of therapy for, your, for you and your needs is also very important. Mm-hmm. Finding out, you know, if it's understanding that one thing I like from the show is they say that it's not an exact science, is it? And it's like, well, no, it's not. A lot of it is trial and error, but it's the best we have, yeah. you know, and finding that maybe a combination of low dosage of drugs or high dosage of drugs, what kind of uh, therapies work for you, but being open to what your what the process is and not trying to hide it because of shame is what helps you get better. Yes. And also um, uh, showing that the mind, the brain is such a powerful thing. Oh, right. Because it's like you think if she wanted to Well, do, I mean, you know? to, to, to sit there and be like, just turn off the illusions. Turn off the hallucinations. It's like, well, <clears throat> in her mind, they're not a hallucination. They're real. So that would be like, if to, to empathize, someone telling you the sky is really not there. Just stop believing the sky is there. If you could just stop believing the sky is there, you'll be better. Like, try doing that. Try waking up tomorrow morning and telling yourself the bed is not there. You know, not so easy. The brain is a powerful thing. So I thought the direction was just very, very spot on. And I think the last thing we should mention, and we need to mention... Is the music. Mm-hmm. It has so many different levels because there's so many different emotions that are um, discovered and processed and presented throughout yeah. the show. It's so memorable. It's so beautiful and communicative. Communicative? What is it? A disease? I don't know. <laughs> a commu- it's a communicable disease. No. It's communicative. It's And like you said, it, pr- it helps further those themes that you were bringing up. Mm-hmm. You know, there's repeated melodies and themes in that that really mm-hmm. help communicate. There's, there's the underscoring that helps make you feel anxious. There's yes. anger. There's pain. There's sadness. There's happy moments. It's, it's great underscoring to create a move. It's very cinematic, but for the theater, mm-hmm. which was great. And it was, it's, it creates the perfect moment. It, it's perfect for the moment, excuse me, and for the story. Mm-hmm. Um, it complements and progresses the story really well. Oh, yeah. You know, it, it, it's not something that needs to stand out on its own. It just, like I said, that synergy is just right there. Just, mm-hmm. mm. Well, and every time I think about the show, I try to think of my favorite song. And honestly, it depends on my mood. Yes. Because all of them are great and they yes. go so well together. Yes. And, uh Yes. Uh, I mean, uh, the first thing that comes to my mind, of course, is I'm Alive. 
See, but then A Promise is a good song, and I Miss the Mountains. I Miss the Mountains comes to mind. Um, we light. Need some light, yeah. Light is one of my favorites. I even love the opening, another, a another song, day. Another Day, you yep. know, or Everything Else Goes Away, and just Superboy and the Invisible Girl. Uh, the one where he says, uh, uh, when Dan's bringing her home, uh, A Better Life, mm-hmm. you know. And they all just stick with me at different moments in my life, depending on what my mood is. They're, and they're songs that, they're almost like as... Uh, Jimmy Jr. would say they're musicians. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean they are though. I mean they're they're these great little vignettes, these stories that exist in these songs, and they're perfect for that reason. That's why you met. Like not only is the music brilliant, but the lyrics too, because they're they really are a snapshot of what's happening. Yes. You know. Um, the show has had several notable notable performers, including Alice Ripley, Aaron Tivet, Jennifer Damian. Uh, Brian Darcy James and Kathy Voidko, which I'm just going to give a huge shout out to Kathy Voidko. Um, I'm currently working with her at The Music Man. And if you hadn't heard, um, she is the swing standby for Sutton Foster. And Hugh Jackman gave a fantastic, um, like, huzzah praise to her. So if you haven't had the opportunity to look at that, Go look it up on YouTube. I was backstage and it made me cry when Under it studies, making Broadway happen. Yes. yes. So just Kathy Voidko. Yes, queen. Let's now talk about the impact the show has had on the theater and its history. Let's start with theatrical impact. I mean, it won a Pulitzer Prize. Which is a big deal. It's a very, very big deal. I mean, they have a Pulitzer Prize for drama every year. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, obviously, a show is going to win every year. But a musical... That's that's the big theatrical impact there. Yeah, it's a Pulitzer Prize winning it's musical. It's one of eight at the time. Yes, and I and actually now that I think about it, since then, I think only two other musicals have won. I think Hamilton mm-hmm. and A Strange Loop are the only okay. other two musicals yeah. since then to have won for drama. Don't quote me. I, I'd have to check, but I'm pretty sure those are the only two. I think uh, the other big theatrical impact is that it introduced a new subject matter into the theater. And when I was writing this out, I really was like racking my brain of like, okay, has a Broadway show dealt with this? And I think maybe we've... uh, We've touched on it. Well, well, humorized mental health, perhaps. Um, and I, I feel like I can safely say a Broadway musical has not dealt with mental health. But if I stretch it into plays, I'm not I'm not 100% confident that a Broadway show hasn't approached mental health. But I don't, I feel confident being able to say not in this tone. Right. You know, and I think that's really important because we weren't coming at the fact of she's crazy, lock her up. We were coming at a place of positivity. 
Yes. Well, and I think the fact that we have a um, we have a show that is a blockbuster musical with only six people in it. There's not an ensemble. And for it to have this much um, hard-hitting music and such a deep story and not have a huge cast. Um, yeah, you got me thinking. I'm trying to think, okay, was there another show? It's a smaller show that's been a huge success. And I'm literally like, oh, oh, I mean, company has No, they still 14. have an ensemble. No, I mean, not they have, no, no, no. Company doesn't have an ensemble. It only has the people... Who exists? So I think it's fourteen people. But that's a lot compared compared to six. Compared to six. No, I, I understand that. I mean six. <laughs> Stop it. But I mean up until that point. Right. You know, and I was about to say the Purdue. Never mind, never mind, never mind. Backpedal. No, I think I think you're absolutely right. I, I really on thinking on my toes, I can't really think of a show that's that small that has I been that, that big of a hit. Up, Up until, until that this point. point. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it also introduced new storytelling into the musical theater. And I know that sounds weird, but I can't think of a show where you have someone from a past life, like a child, mm-hmm. speaking and guiding a parent. Right. Well, and this is more like, it, it is kind of like that ghost story a little bit, um, as far as if you think about like Gabe guiding his mom around. But but it doesn't seem like a ghost. The thing is, is it doesn't come off like a ghost. Exactly. And that's why I'm like, this is, you know, knowing that he's a hallucination makes him real. Mm -hmm. He's not lit. He's not costumed or anything like a ghost. No. He's, it looks like, that's why. Because in her mind, he's there. That's why, and even if you go back and listen to the synopsis, we didn't name until like, Five minutes into the synopsis, the fact that he's dead. It wasn't until they brought the birthday cake out that they're like, yeah, he died. And that's when you also find out, you're like, oh yeah, Gabe is dead. Until that point, you just think you're, he's another character. Yeah, you're like, yeah, they're acknowledging him. And you don't realize that it's only Diana acknowledging him up until that point. Right. And so, to me, it's, it's a new style, new kind of storytelling where now we have this element of your hallucination talking to you. Mm-hmm. You know, your your thoughts dictating your actions that long through the show yes um and this was a progressive rock musical which i was racking my brain again since rent when was there a progressive rock musical and the only one i come up with is moving out but then i thought about it and the style and the sound of it which is very similar to rent mm-hmm. who directed the show yeah yeah. Michael Grief. Yeah. Same guy from Rent. And I was like, ah. But it's important because to have that that similarity 20 years apart. Right. Well, and it just goes to show the sustainability of using it as a vehicle for storytelling. Well, and just the re- reinvention too. I mean, Rent with that sound and everything and the subject matter that exists then in the 1990s, 20 years later, we're... Using sort of that sound, but we're reinventing it. But again, it's groundbreaking subject matter and style of theater and everything like that. You can reinvent bits of it and still get a different product. So going on to social impact, I feel like the show started and forwarded the conversation surrounding mental health. I know for us it did. Like even just between you and I, um, you know, we both have had our issues. I think... 
you know, I'm diagnosed as uh, I have anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder um, with depression. And I'm just crazy. And you're no. just crazy. <laughs> no. Um, you know, but it, it helped find words or helped start a platform for us to be able to do, start having conversations about these things yes. because it didn't need to be shameful. It gave a name to a lot of things. That we didn't understand, like how to, what the word was for this, this, and this. It finally gave a, a name or a word well, to it, and you were like, "Oh, that's what that well, is." Well, and to know that there are different options, mm-hmm. and that you, as the patient, can help guide them with your doctor. You don't have to sit there and have your doctor tell you, "Oh, well, we are gonna have to shock your brain. It's the only conclusion." Or we're gonna have to make you a zombie. Exactly, and yeah. you know where we started when this show came out, and where we are now is just two different worlds. And, yeah. I, and we still have a long ways to go as far as, you know, society being open and talking about mental health. But the fact that we're already talking about it as a society, you know, without shows like this, I mean, it just goes that we need to pay it forward to shows like this that did start us putting it in our conscious. Well, and, and even now, right. mental health is a prevalent discussion about health. I mean, even in the middle of a pa- the pandemic... We obviously know our physical health is important during the pandemic, but you don't hear a lot about that. What you hear about is mental health. How is our mental health faring? How are the frontline workers' mental health faring? And I feel like if we hadn't started a discussion regarding mental health 10 years ago, it may not have been as important. Mm -hmm. But it's so important that you don't only, you know, make sure that your physical health is but up to snuff, but your mental health needs to be there just as much. Because and your mental health is as important as your physical health because your brain is an organ. you got to take care of it just like you do your body. That's right. Um, I, I also felt like, you know, as we've been talking, it gave another outlet to educate the population about bipolar depression. Oh, yeah. I mean, before this show came out, I thought that bipolar meant you were crazy. Well, yeah. Like, I was afraid to be diagnosed with bipolar depression because I was like, oh, my God, like this is not, this is a bad thing to have. Like, this will permanently label me. I won't be and able to get a job. I won't be able to. It's like a great moment where, um, going back to the West Wing, Josh is getting... Uh, treatment after he, it's the Christmas episode after he was shot mm-hmm. and they say you have PTSD and he goes well well can we make it something else because that doesn't really sound like something they let you have and work for the president you know and I, I was like that sounds like something I can't have and do what I want to do like that doesn't sound good and my doctor was one that explained it like it's just the name that doesn't mean you're crazy that's just what it's called. Don't look at it as a... It has a negative connotation because for the longest time, it's been used incorrectly. Mm-hmm. Bipolar just means you have ups and downs. Mm-hmm. You have opposite ups and downs. And depression means your primary... That's your primary thing. By Bipolar depression means you have ups and downs, but from those ups and downs, like the middle, what you mainly are is depressed. And I was like, oh, that makes some... Why don't they just say that to that? Because it's a mouthful. We're, we like to say things smaller, so... But this show gave a chance to educate people about, well, this is actually what people go through. Mm-hmm. See, they're not entirely crazy. This is what they're feeling. Give them a break. This is why. Well, and these things like. They're some not t- eccentric. Sorry, that's what I was going Yeah. For. And also to know that, you know, they're not just, oh, well, sucks to be you. Suddenly you have this. It's like there are traumas and experiences that can have a result that can cause issues like this. Yes. And not everything needs to be treated with drugs. No. But 
Uh, I also felt like the, another societal impact was that this provided another great musical to a younger generation who were fans of shows like Rent. Yes. It brought another generation to the theater. I don't know if it brought another generation, but no, it definitely so brought a another new... fan base. Yes, it brought a, a larger fan base. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, I think the biggest societal impact was this was the mental health musical. Mm-hmm. And I think it still is, to be honest. I can't think of another show that addressed mental health more than this, but... So is the show still relevant? Yes. Yeah. Yes, because uh, everyone doesn't acknowledge mental health. Yeah. I, I, I'd say especially at a time when we are also mental health positive, a show about mental health is more than welcome on Broadway. And I also think the sound and story is absolutely timeless. I, oh, yeah. I don't think that you, you I, I don't feel like you'd put the album on and you'd be like, oh yeah, that was from 2010. I think it, it, it's timeless. You, it could be now. And I think the show's also, if it's not for Broadway, it could be perfect for regional community, community or college theaters as well. Oh yeah. That, it fits perfect. It's, yeah. We wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing this show. So we had the good fortune, as we've mentioned several times, of getting to the, getting to see the show. Uh, I mean, we've seen it twice. Once back in 2010 on Broadway, and then we saw it again uh, 20, 2012, I think, at Pioneer Theater. Something like that. Yeah, in Salt Lake City. Um, but we want to talk about Broadway. Mm-hmm. And the stories we have from that. So, so before you get to your first little thing right there, mm-hmm. I want you to know that I finally realized how that happened. Uh-huh. Um, because the person that you're going to tell in your story uh-huh. was taking a short break to check in on this musical because he was the uh, music director for American Idiot. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so that's, I, know. I didn't realize that. Uh, yeah, he, he does a lot of work around, yeah. you know, Bring It On, Legally Blonde. But he didn't do American Idiot. He just was the music director. Yeah, that's that's what he does. Well. So I, we had the pleasure of meeting Tom Kitt. It was a big deal. Tom Kitt, who wrote the music. Um, and I... I know I wreck. Oh, oh, I remember why. So this was during the time when I really wanted to be a conductor on Broadway. I was like, I'm going to go get my BFA, musical theater, woo, woo, and then I'm going to come be a conductor. It's going to be great. Naive little me. Um, and I remember seeing the, the pianist who was the conductor, and he was just awesome. And this is the summer where I was like, I just want to meet all the conductors and just talk to them, and it'd be great. Anyway, the conductor comes out, and I get to just talk to him for a little while. Um, which was amazing. And as we're talking, it, I come to realize and find out that it's Tom Kitt, the guy who wrote the music. And he was so freaking nice and so interesting and just amazing. And all the success that he had before and all the success that's followed him since, 
is well due to him. Um, but he was wonderful to talk to, and he offered some great advice. Um, and as my lovely wife has just hinted, he was music directing just around the corner at the St. James Theater where American Idiot was playing. So, but um, yes, yeah, so we got to meet him. Um, then, you know, of course, we got to meet other members of the cast. And at the time, Brian Darcy James was playing Dan. Um, so we got to see him again because we'd previously seen him in Shrek. Mm-hmm. Um, and we love Brian Darcy James. Oh, yeah. The man can do no wrong. He's brilliant. And he's so freaking nice. Um, we did not get to meet Alice Ripley, but this is a funny and woeful tale um, that kind of goes with it. So we were in the Kiss and Cry line um, on the side of the Booth Theater. So now the Booth Theater, which sits on the you know on the corner of Schubert Alley and 45th Street, and the stage door is on Schubert Alley, but the main entrance of the theater is on that corner. Um, and Miss Ripley's SUV was there in front of the Booth Theater. Well, we're all waiting outside. Her assistant comes out. And she explains, like, Miss Ripley will not be taking pictures, um, blah, 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 blah. She was resting her voice or something. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Like, that makes sense. We've heard that. The assistant comes back out again, and she starts handing out these little, like, business cards. Like, you know, feel free to check her out at a cabaret show here. Yeah, da, 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 da. Oh, that's exciting. Yay, yeah, yeah. And then the assistant comes out a third time, and it's like, I'm so sorry, Miss Ripley's actually left for the evening. Thank you so much. And she snuck out the front. And I was like, oh. She must have been tired, you know? Yeah, and I mean, you know, she owes us nothing, but I was like, that was like a build-up for nothing. (laughs) (laughs) But um, even though we didn't get her autograph, the the opportunity to get to see her, because she was phenomenal. Phenomenal. Oh, my God, she was so good in that role. And I would pay to see her in that role again. Oh, yeah. It was amazing. Um, I also remember, um, sorry, I also remember when we saw this at Pioneer Theater, we actually had a bunch of our friends who really wanted to see the show, so we ended up getting tickets for like 10 of us to go and see the show together, and um, everyone but Andrew and I, that was our first experience seeing the show. Um, So it was just really kind of cool to, and these guys, half of them were still in high school. I had just graduated high school. You know, and so getting to be able to kind of go as a group, like on our own, choose to go to theater and then talk about it was so much fun. Yeah. Bringing more people to the theater. One more fun story about the uh, Pioneer Theater production of Next to Normal. Um, You and I actually got to see, in the role of Henry in that show, a young Alex Brightman, who would later go on to play Mr. Ned Schneebly. Um, Dewey Finn, actually, in uh, School of Rock, and Beetlejuice here on Broadway, so we can say we met and saw him when, you know, Um, which I always, when we've seen those two shows, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, we saw this guy back in Salt Lake at a regional theater, now look at him, you know. I just think that's really, really cool. I just love the show. I remember just loving every minute of that evening of that show. And then, you know, the last thing I'll mention, fun fact... Um, our opening scene, I know it kind of seemed odd and kind of blasé. Um, that's a true story. After we saw Next to Normal, we went right next door to Junior and sat on the patio. And we had a late supper with cheesecake and coffee. And as we sat there, Andrew Lloyd Webber did walk by us. 
Um, and Dwayne The Rock Johnson did walk by us that night as well. Bette Midler did not walk by us that night. We saw no. her another night when she was doing I'll Eat You Last mm-hmm. um, at the Booth Theater a couple years later. But, um, yeah, no, that that is a true story. That, that night we did see Andrew Lloyd Webber and uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson from the patio of Junior, so... That's that's why that scene was there. I was like, what can we do with this night? Da, da, da. And I went, oh, yeah, I remember. <laughs> so if you ever want to kind of be people watching and star watching after you see a show at either the Schubert or the booth or anywhere, head to Junior's on their patio, you know, if, if you can't get into Sardis. turn their patio back into a place where you can eat. I'm sure they will because I bet that was for uh, the, the holiday. Yeah, but it's perfect in the summer if it's oh, not yeah. too humid. It's wonderful. So, um, with the new year upon us and us now returning to the theater, we look forward to seeing the show again. I hope you'll be able to catch Next to Normal at a theater near you soon. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies and please keep your mask on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at StageWhisperPod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by David Mumford, Lovira, Jesse Spillane, Jazzar, and Billy Murray. <laughs>